All right, if you don't mind, try to locate a Bible. We've got them in the book racks and the chairs here. And if you open up one of our Bibles that are here on site, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. In the Bibles that we have here, that's on page 595, 595. Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 to uh, 10, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. This is Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It reads like this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the stash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Let's pray. Lord, as we've opened your word, we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak. We want to hear your voice. And we're praying, God, that you would help us in this Advent season to incline our hearts to worship our King. We pray that as we've opened uh, this text, that you would help us to see the beauty of this King. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So Advent is a season that we prepare for the arrival of the Lord. We spend time in our services uh, inclining our hearts toward him. We spend time reflecting on who he is and what he has accomplished, and what that means for us, and we prepare ourselves for celebrating Christmas together. So Isaiah is actually an an awesome place to go because Isaiah lived hundreds of years previous to the actual birth of Jesus of Nazareth. So he's forward-looking, but he's prophesying. The Spirit of God is coming through him, prophesying about this coming king, and he gives us some exceptional passages. In fact, last week, We looked at that birth announcement, Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, a Savior is given, and he, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah was looking forward to that, expecting this arrival of the Messiah, and he was so confident, in fact, that he's able to put it in the past tense, basically saying, this one's as good as done. He's coming hundreds of years later. But what he has come to do is as good as done. This this is the promise of God coming true. Well, in Isaiah chapter 11 today, we find Isaiah reflecting on this coming king and what this king is like and what his rule and his reign will be like for us. 
So let's look at it here. I've got three different headings here. We've got the fitness of the king in verses 1 to 3, his, his ability to be this person for us. He's the right person for the job. So the fitness of the king to reign, the character of his reign, what is it like? How does he lead? What, what will that feel like for us? That's the second thing, the character of his reign. And finally, the outcome of his reign. What will, what will the world be like when this king comes in fullness? Let's get to work. The fitness of the king, verses 1 to 3. Uh, he, the first thing that we should note here is that it's telling us that he is coming in fulfillment to promises that God has been making all along. We see that in verse 1. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Now, that begs the question, who's Jesse? Like, I don't, you know, we read the Bible and sometimes these names crop up and it's spoken of as if we should know who they are. And it's like, well, we've got a Jesse in our church. Uh, Jesse, I know a Jesse Miller. Um, but we ask the question, who's Jesse? And why does the Bible assume that we would just know who this is? Well, Jesse is the father of David, King David. And what it's saying here, Isaiah is saying, there's a shoot, a child, a descendant who's going to come from the household of Jesse. Um, if you're familiar with the Bible, God has been making these promises from the very beginning. That, it, that he spoke to Eve after the fall into sin and after the effects of that. And he spoke to Eve and he told her the consequences of all that had happened that day. But then he describes how he's going to make things right. And he says, you will have a child. You will have a seed. And that child, there's a serpent that's going to nip at his heel. But he's going to crush the serpent's head. Right away, God is already making promises. All that's broken in the world, I've got a plan for it, God is saying. And then that plan, we anticipate it coming true. And God keeps building on it. He keeps rehearsing it. He keeps saying to people, there's a plan. There's one who's coming. He's going to make all things right again. So he says to Abram, I'm calling you into a privileged relationship. I'm going to bless you so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. And you're going to have a, you're going to have a, child, a child. And your lineage, your people are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky or as the sand on the shore. You're going to be the father of a great nation. And he doesn't even have a kid at that point, but he's saying there's one coming. There's a promised one coming through you. Uh, he has that child Isaac, and, and that child has children, and Jacob, and then the people of God. And, and over and over again, God keeps rehearsing. There's one coming. There's one coming. There's someone coming who is going to fix all that is broken in our world. And he says to David, to King David, a descendant from this line, he says to David, you're going to have a child who's going to rule permanently from your household. This is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. God makes this incredible promise to David. So then when we hear Isaiah speaking this, it's, it's that rehearsal. It's that God reminding us, there is one who is coming through this lineage, through this people, and he's going to make all things right. In other words, when we read this, we ought to be inclined to think, this is the promise coming true. This is what God has been talking about all along. There is one coming. He is the shoot that will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David, and this is a part of God's promised plan, and it will come true in Christ. But here's the interesting part. This lineage is coming from what looks devastated, a stump. So behind my house is a cornfield, and uh, the field actually starts a, a ways back from my property line, and it was when we moved in, it was all wooded right there, and we kind of rehabbed it and made it look a lot nicer. But in there was a, a 
a tree that had been cut down, and it was a massive tree. It had been cut down, and as we kind of beat back the brush and kind of got to it, we were able to see more clearly. Not only had it been cut down, it had also been burned. And I'd love to know the story on it. I'd love to know how did, like, what happened, what prompted this. Did it get struck by lightning? You know, was it on fire at some point? But anyways, there's this tree that was cut down and burned. And um, what's interesting, you would look at it, and it's super ugly. And you think, this thing is toast. Like, this thing is literally scorched. But it kept growing stuff. These shoots would come out of it because it was so resilient. And that imagery is what Isaiah is telling us here. The people of God have been leveled. They've been cut down. And, and in this season, and historically as he's talking here, the Assyrians had come and they had wiped them out. They had cut them down. You can read about that in chapter 10 if you'd like. They had been cut down, and you look at it then and you go, nothing can happen here. And here God steps in, prophesying through Isaiah, and he says, no, this is the kind of environment where I start my work. And this is good news for us because a lot of times we look at the wreckage of our lives and we go, I don't know, maybe the promise got called off. Maybe God's not going to do something here. Look at, the, look at the heaping wreckage of my life, the stump that my life is. And God is able to say, no, this is where I begin my redemptive work. So the people of God have been cut down, and nonetheless, they are going to be this environment from which a shoot will spring up and it will bear fruit that will change the earth. Barry Webb actually comments and about the... the Contrast that's going on here in chapter 10, Assyria cuts them down, but because of their swagger and hubris and pride, God says, you're my instrument, but I'm cutting you down. So both the Assyrians and the, Egypt, or the, Assyrians and the Israelites are cut down, and Barry Webb says, this is a contrast because the Assyrians are cut never to recover. The people of God have been cut down only to have a shoot spring up from that that will change the world. It's incredible. It's incredible. This shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And we're talking about the Messiah, who he is and what he's going to do. And he literally has and will. He has changed the world and he will continue to do so through his incredible work. But notice he is especially suited for this role of being the king who reigns because he has the spirit of God. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. In the Old Testament, there were individuals who got an assignment and God would put his spirit on them so they could do the job. And like the book of Judges would be a good place to see that, where they get the spirit momentarily to do what they're assigned to do. That's not the case with this king. This king has the spirit permanently resting upon him. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him and he then is perfectly suited to do this incredible assignment of redeeming the world. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding. It's the spirit that gives insight into how things actually are and the best course of action to take and the strategy to see that executed. It's this idea of knowing the heart of God and knowing how to see it come true. You guys recall there was a king named Solomon who prayed for this. Solomon looked at the, the calling to lead the people of God, and he said, God, please give me wisdom and understanding so that I might lead this vast people of yours. This is a big assignment. Please give me wisdom and understanding. And God says, that's a great prayer. I like that one. I'm actually going to answer that more than you would expect. I'm going to give you incredible wisdom 
an incredible understanding so that you might do this. And then we get a case study of how this played out. You guys remember there was a situation where two moms come in and they had both recently had children, little babies, and they were living in the same quarters and they were both co-sleeping with their children. And one of the moms rolled over onto her baby and the baby died. And so they both come before King Solomon, who's asking, God, please give me wisdom. This is a hard one. They both come in, and here's the the case. One of them is saying, during the night, this other woman rolled onto her baby and killed her baby. And then she switched our kids. So I woke up in the morning, and my baby was not with me, but was with her. And instead, I had a dead child before me. And the other lady's like, no, you got that one all wrong. This is my kid. This this child that's alive, and Solomon has to make a decision. He has to make a judgment. What does he do? He says, get me a sword. Cut the baby in half, give half to this woman, half to the other woman, and uh, that's, that's my judgment. And one of the ladies says, no, 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 please, king, please do not do that. Spare this child. You can give this child to her. And, and the, what happens in that situation is he, he's able to discern, you're the mom. You're the one who wants what's best for this child no matter what. And he gives the child over to her. That's wisdom and understanding. The Lord, Jesus Christ, has this kind of wisdom. He always is able to look at a circumstance and and know the best course of action. He's always able to discern what's really going on and render the best judgments and have the best strategy to see it through. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding. It's the spirit of counsel and might. Those are military terms. He has a strategy for advancing his kingdom, and he has the ability to see it through. Here's what surprises us. It doesn't, it's not the battle plan we would draft. His, his counsel and his might look at first blush to be defeat. We look at his, his counsel and his might and his strategy for advancing his kingdom, and we go, it looks like you lose because you take Jesus and he goes to the cross and he dies. He doesn't conquer. He dies. But that is the plan of God, and it does win people to redemption. Jesus was willing to go to the cross and die, and he is advancing his kingdom, not through coercion or persuasion, but through his love and his appeal to us. He is the spirit of counsel and might. He is the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He, he has the spirit that allows him to know the heart of God the knowledge of God, and the fear of the Lord. He's always making decisions that reflect God's heart, and he likes to do that. Verse 3, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He, he enjoys doing what God wants him to do. And I was thinking about this, and I was like, man, I should start praying for this, because there are a lot of times, and I don't know if I'm alone in this. I, w- I would venture to guess probably not. There are a lot of times where I have to make a choice between doing what is right I know it to be the heart of God and doing what I want. You ever feel that before where you go, okay, if I were to make my own choice here and I did it my way, I, I wouldn't be following what God wants me to do. Thank you, Larry. It would be ugly, Larry said, and I agree totally. And I've done that plenty of times as well. Um, but, but this discrepancy there of like, hey, I, I have to choose. Do I do what God wants me to do or do I do what I want to do? And if I'm wise, I make the right choice. And a lot of times the, the delight follows. That's not how it works with the Lord. He's never having his arm twisted. Like, here's what knowledge and the fear of the Lord looks like. And he's like, I don't want to do that. 
There's only one instance that I can think of that's anywhere even close to this. It's the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying and he says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But immediately he says, not my will, let your will be done. So the Lord delights in the fear of God. He, he has this spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he delights to do what, what God wants him to do. So he is uniquely fit for this position. He is the one who is the fulfillment of the promised plan of God, and he is the one who is uh, experiencing the spirit of the Lord resting on him, therefore making him fit to do this incredible calling. Secondly, what is the character of his reign? Verses 3 to 5. When he exercises his rulership, in, a, in one word, it's beautiful. Simply put, it is a beautiful thing. Because he's actually living out some of the things that we've already explained here. Verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. He's able to recognize the heart of the matter and make decisions accordingly. 1 Samuel 16, 7 puts it like this. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When Jesus is rendering judgment, he's able to see, he's able to cut right through all the noise, and he's able to see what's really going on, and he makes decisions accordingly. He doesn't just look at the surface of things, but he sees beyond that and through that. When he makes his judgments, they are beautiful, verse 4. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. We, when we read that, he's going to judge. We hear the, in our, the way we use it, we use it often negatively. So we hear it as a negative thing, to judge the needy. But in biblical usage, judgment is a good thing. It means to make things right or make things as they ought to be. And so when the Lord is judging the needy, he's not looking at them going, you bums, you should have done a lot of different things or you wouldn't, have, you, know, you wouldn't have landed in this situation. No, he's looking at it going, I'm going to make this right. He's judging the needy in that way, and with justice he gives decisions for the poor of the earth. So he's looking at these people that from a human vantage point, we look at them and we go, man, they, their experience is pretty rough. What they're going through is pretty rough. And the Lord looks at that and he goes, that's not how it's always going to be. I'm going to make things right for them. Isn't it interesting that when the Lord preached the most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, he began it like this, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And he, in another instance where he preaches a very similar message, he actually just says, blessed are the poor. But he tells us, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He looks at people who are down and out and he says, this situation that you're going through, human appearances, it, it looks regrettable. But from the vantage point of God, there, there is a promise coming true for you. He says of the meek, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He looks at people and he's able to say, I'm going to do something that's going to result in beauty. I'm going to look at this situation and the things that maybe disadvantage these people and the way in which the system itself is rigged against them to favor others. And he says, that's not how it's always going to be. I'm going to bring judgment in the earth and it will benefit all who will receive it. How's he going to do this? Look at verse 4. He's going to do it with his voice. Verse 4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. What's the instrument that he's using here? His mouth. He's talking. 
And this is such an incredible thing. I'm going to spend a couple minutes on it because it is so profound. The instrument by which Jesus will bring his judgment is his voice. Um, if you guys recall, that's how creation occurred. God created verbally. He just said it. Let there be, and it was. He spoke things into existence. Now, the, the reality of that concept is so significant because if we start to think, how is God going to recreate the world? Same way. We see it here. He's going to bring his judgment in the earth by merely speaking. And because his voice is so powerful and effective, it just happens. One of my favorite artists is called Page CXVI. They're a group that takes old hymns and then they redo them. And uh, it's beautiful music, and they do such a wonderful job. But the name of the, the group, as I understand it, and I didn't bother looking it up. I should have. Page CXVI, it, uh, they named their group based off of the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the version that they were coming from, they opened it up, and in uh, the page, Roman numeral CXVI, that was the page where Aslan was singing. Okay, Aslan is the lion He's the figure of Christ. And on page CXVI, Aslan is singing. And as he's singing, what is, what's happening? Narnia is experiencing creation. Narnia is coming into existence. And so they, they recognize that's how God works. When God speaks, all of a sudden, the beauty of what he wants ultimately is coming true. And so this is, uh, this is the reason why I believe in preaching, by the way. Um, a lot of people could be like, why do you guys do that? Like, why do you let one dude stand up there with a microphone and everyone just has to listen to him? I mean, I think we could sit at tables and have discussions and dialogues and probably get a lot more done. But the thing is, my understanding of preaching leads me to believe that we want to create an environment for the voice of God to come through. My favorite definition of preaching comes from Ray Ortland, and I don't think it's unique to him. I bet he got it from his dad, but he puts it like this. Here's, here's when preaching is going the way it's supposed to. Here's what it is. It is Jesus speaking the new creation into existence. It's his voice coming through, saying what he wants, and we're being remade. Which is why, if you notice, when I pray before I preach, I'm praying, this is your word, God. Would you, by your spirit, take this word and let us hear your voice? And you go, well, where's Corey and all that? Who gives a rip? Right? I'm just the, I'm just the one standing up here with the mouth that God is using for this purpose, but the, the end game for all of us should be, we want to hear the voice of Jesus here. We want to hear what he has to say, and we believe that if he says it, it'll change us on the spot. He will remake us in his image. And his voice is incredibly powerful. As you can see here in verse 4, it's how he's going to slay the wicked. It's the rod of his mouth. He's going to accomplish his purposes. It's his voice, and his voice is incredibly powerful. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said this, but if you remember when Jesus goes up to visit his, friend, his friends and Lazarus has passed away, he, he goes there to visit with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and he says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And I think it was Sproul that said, I'm glad he used his name. Because if he didn't use his name and he just said, come forth, Everybody comes out of the tomb. That's how powerful the voice of the Lord is. And he wears his character as a garment. Look at verse 5. Righteousness will be his belt, 
and faithfulness the sash around his waist. When he reigns, it's obvious how beautiful it is. As he's reigning, his, the righteousness is like a belt around him. Faithfulness is like a sash. It's obvious who he is and what he's doing. So he is uniquely suited for this role. And when he exerts his, his rulership and his reign, we experience his beauty. Finally, the outcome of the king's work in verses 6 to 9. This is almost too much for us. But look at how Isaiah describes it. When this king exerts his rulership in its fullness, all of creation will look different. Look at verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. What, what is this getting at? Isaiah's looking, prophesying through the future, recognizing there's a king coming. When that king comes, he's going to rule and reign what, what will that mean for us? Creation will be transformed. And he says, there are these predators and prey that are now living together in harmony. So you've got a, a wolf with a lamb. They're not in jeopardy. The lamb doesn't have to be nervous. They're shaking. What's going to happen next? And the lion and the yearling together, and a kid is leading. It's so secure that a child is exercising dominion. Alec Motier, the Old Testament uh, professor, he put it like this. He said, in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, children will be able to exercise the dominion that Adam and Eve were supposed to. That's how effective the work of this king is. Those who are weak and small, little children, will be able to do what Adam and Eve were originally instructed to do. This, this transformation of creation is so complete that even their diet is changed. Look at verse 7. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. See, Isaiah is giving us imagery that is just breathtaking. We begin to think through, what will it look like to live with God in, in this new creation? And what we come up with is, if we're using our imagination, what we're getting at is, this feels like, Eden restored. It feels like, if you can imagine asking the question, what would it be like to live in the Garden of Eden with God? And Isaiah is giving us language here. This is probably what it was like. The work of the king is so thorough that this new reality that's open to us is, is the opportunity for humanity to step back into the Garden of God with him. And that's the purpose that God has in his saving work. It's so thorough, in fact, that the curse itself has been entirely reversed. You guys remember in the garden why, why we're not there anymore? It was because humanity made some very poor choices. A serpent, which is, uh, as Genesis describes it, the craftiest of all the creation that God had made, enticed Adam and Eve to sin against God. And they did that, and they experienced the consequences of it. But notice how Isaiah describes the effect of this king. He actually shows us a child and a serpent together. The infant, verse 8, the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. My neighbors have a snake. Harrison loves that snake. I don't know why, 
he came home with a project one time. He's like, it was during it was during Thanksgiving time, and he was thankful for Darby the snake. And then down the way, a ways, mom and dad. Like, but when he plays with that snake, I'm nervous. Like I'm just like I don't like this. This creeps me out. But here's what Isaiah is saying: in the new heavens and the new earth, the effect of the king's reign is so significant that all of the things that made us anxious previously are done with. So now you've got a child, an infant, playing at the cobra's den. You got a little kid putting its hand in the uh, in the viper's nest, and you don't have to worry about it. Why? Look at verse nine. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. God is saying, "There's a day coming when danger is gone, when you don't have to be nervous." You don't have to worry about people suffering ill anymore because now the holy mountain of God is invading all of creation. You'll see that here in the end of verse 9, but I want us to think about this for a minute. The work of Christ is so thorough and complete that danger goes away. That is good news, friends. As a pastor, I hear the prayer requests and I get, to, I get the updates on health things that are going on. Sometimes I hear that through the grapevine, but I just know there's a vulnerability to our experience. There, there's a, and, and we're also aging, right? And so all of us are feeling like our bodies are breaking down. We're dying. We're dying. I mean, some of us faster than others, but we're dying. We're all dying. And, and there's this reality that there's harm and danger and destruction. And then we look at interpersonal stuff too, and we go, man, sin is wreaking havoc everywhere we look. But God is able to say, there's a day coming when the king arrives and when he brings to fullness his, his work, and there will, there will no longer be harm or danger in all of God's holy mountain. Look at verse 9. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everything, everywhere will reflect God. His presence will invade everything. And it will be so beautiful and so incredible that creation itself will reflect his glory. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. All right, finally, look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. A couple things for us to note here. This one that was a shoot of Jesse is now described as a root. The shoot of Jesse is a root. He, he is not just a descendant in the lineage of Jesse. He's the creator. Jesus is not just a descendant of King David and his family line. He is God himself. The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. It's an interesting word that's used there. It's actually a word that means lifted up. This root of Jesse will be lifted up. And what will happen? Everyone will rally to him. He will be lifted up and all people everywhere will come to him. Isn't it fascinating that the Lord himself in John chapter 12, he puts it like this, describing what he's doing. In John chapter 12, verse 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus says, When I'm lifted up, all people will come. And then John who's writing this narrative here in John chapter 12, he gives us a, a description. What did he mean there? Well, look at verse 33. 
He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, all people will rally to me. And John says, here's what we're talking about, Calvary. When Jesus is exalted in that way, when he is hung between heaven and earth on that crucifix, all people will see him for who he truly is. So Jesus is the one who is completing this worldwide mission of God, drawing all people from all places to himself. And we, we, we experience that because we see him for who he really is, the cross of Jesus Christ, and we recognize that's for us. He was lifted up for me. He died in my place so that I could be forgiven and set free. He died for me so that I could be transformed and become more like him. He died for me so I could enjoy the new heavens and the new earth together with him. And here's the final phrase here in our verse, in our passage, and it says, in his resting place will be glorious. Literally, it's his resting place is glory. But it's an invitation. He's saying the work that this king performs results in the transformation of the world in such a way that we're going to enjoy rest forever, and it will be glory. And I was thinking about it this morning. I was having a talk with one of the individuals serving in kids' church, talking about the busyness of this season and the, the meeting today, and I'll share some of the history and, and uh, some of the things that we've been through and the work that was performed and there's something about the Lord's invitation to rest that is particularly sweet to me. Because I think about the difficulties of all of this, and I come to the conclusion, I need that. But I'm not alone. I look at all of us, and I look at the situations that we're going through, and I realize, man, we need the invitation to experience his rest. And we recognize that'll be glory. That'll be glory. And the Lord himself, Matthew chapter 11, says it like this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This king that we anticipate, this king that came in the first century and will return, this king who is perfectly suited to the assignment of ruling and reigning over all of the new heavens and the new earth, this king who has the spirit of God with wisdom and understanding, this king who is coming again to remake the world in a, in a way where there will be no more danger or destruction, this king offers us rest today. So would you look to him and experience his ministry for you? Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that by your spirit, through your word, you would continue to minister to us. We're praying that in these moments, our hearts would be inclined to worship this king, that we wouldn't just anticipate his first coming, but we would also expect and celebrate his second coming. We look forward to the day when you make all things new. We look forward to the day when there is no more sickness or pain or death for the old order of things is going away. And the one seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. Until then, Lord, could you make us an embassy of that kingdom, a people who make that kingdom known everywhere that we go for his glory. Amen.